everyone, and welcome to Tuning In From Within. My name is Kelly Hurt. And I am Kara Solemsas. And today, we're listening in on a conversation Kara had with her sister, Chelsea Solemsas, about the drastic difference Chelsea experienced between her first and second birthing journey. Kara, can you tell me what made you sit down with your sister for this interview? Yes. So I think what inspired this was Chelsea has had two vastly different birthing experiences, one being very empowering and incredible and beautiful, and the other being really traumatic that needed a lot of postpartum work and other resources to really get through that. Yeah, absolutely. And the conversation is fantastic. And this is something you did while you were pregnant. This was from, I was going to say a year ago, but my gosh, it was a little over a year. I know. Ago. What what year is it? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. But before we dive in, let's just share a little bit of background on Chelsea because she's um, kind of a badass, honestly. So she has a master's of science in equity and diversity in education. Um, she used her expertise to work for the Washoe County School District in Reno, Nevada. But now she lives in Colorado, runs two businesses, has two kids. And does it all. Yeah, literally. She does it all. And I'm like, <laughs> literally, <yes. laughs> I'm like, you're making me look bad because I work part-time and do stay at home part-time and I'm freaking exhausted. So Chelsea is one of my older sisters and she is a real spitfire. She's a freaking straight shooter and is pretty much the exact opposite of me personality wise. And she's a natural leader, which I mean, a fellow Leo, wink, wink, oh. Kelly, by Our nature, just the best. <laughs> they're the best and they are freaking intimidating, man. But it comes in handy with a lot of the things that she is passionate about. And so mm-hmm. she right now has those two incredible organizations that you mentioned. One is called Limitless Littles and the other is called Coffee Syrup. Limitless Littles is super cool. Uh, and I wish that something like that existed for me when I was a little girl. They work to organize mini field trips, right? That showcase women working in all different kinds of professions. Exactly. Because when you're a kid, especially being a young girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know, you have the kids that are like, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a doctor. And yeah, some Mm -hmm. little girls would say that, but I know for myself and in my grade school, kids would be like, I want to be a princess or Mm -hmm. there just wasn't a lot of representation. And so that's something that Chelsea focuses in on with that business with her business partner, Christina. And so they really created that space for children to see and to learn that women can do anything that they want to do. And like Mm -hmm. you said, be a badass in leadership roles. Yeah. And even I follow them on Instagram and I'm always like, like I'm still inspired and I'm 26. So thank you for that, uh, Chelsea and Christina. Yes. Let's talk about coffee syrup. Let's talk about it. So for those of you that don't know, I am half Filipino. Chelsea and I both are, obviously. Kavi Sarap is really heavily influenced by our Filipino culture. Masarap is like a common phrase of saying, oh, that's yummy. That's delicious. Mm. So Kavi Sarap, follow them on Instagram. We'll leave them in the show notes and everything to stay up to date. So yeah, she's doing a lot of things. I mean, within the past year, Chelsea has been able to create these two really beautiful opportunities for people to support women and minority-owned businesses like these. And I'm just happy that they do just that. So again, we'll put those links in the show notes so you can stay up to date on their events and opening. Yes. And Coffee Syrup, by the way, is co-owned or co-run with her friend Hannah. Shout out to Hannah, who's also part Filipino. Just had to throw that out there. 
So now that everyone knows that Chelsea is very much the type of person who isn't afraid to go after what she wants, she's definitely not afraid of challenging the status quo. She's got a lot of knowledge, she has resources, and she really doesn't take any shit from anyone, including myself. <laughs> but yet her experience giving birth to her first child and my niece, McKenna, left her feeling completely powerless and traumatized. Yeah, and the silver lining here, if there is one, is that Chelsea's experience with her first birth, McKenna, was exponentially different from her second birth with Amari. Um, second birth was empowering, positive, and completely wonderful from what it sounds like. Yes. And Chelsea's first birthing experience with McKenna really shed a light on the parts of labor and delivery that people don't talk about or they do talk about it. And it's just like, oh, yeah, this happened, even though it's like, oh, yeah, that sounds really traumatizing. But it was the manhandling, the lack of consent, the physical abuse and the mental abuse Mm -hmm. that happened to her. And that happens when we live in a society that, one, operates in a for-profit capitalist medical system where time really does equal money. And number two, exists within the patriarchal belief that there are times when a woman does not have a right to bodily autonomy and may be treated as such during the delivery process. It's just the freaking man getting in the way. (laughs) You got to steer you that man, man. (laughs) Um, We're joking, but also let's take a minute here to check in with the people who are listening. We have this conversation that we're going to listen to, and it includes discussion discussion of trauma and obstetric violence, which might be triggering to those who are about to give birth or someone who has also had a traumatic birth experience themselves. So accompanying the negative experience, there is also a discussion of two positive experiences, which is great, but we also just want to give you a heads up. And we aim for this episode to be really informative and helpful, but we don't want to inhibit your psychological safety. So please listen mindfully. Let's Let's tune tune in. in. Okay, so when I got pregnant, I was working full time, pretty long hours. Sometimes I would work from like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., so pretty kind of high stress job. My headspace in that time wasn't really like focused on my pregnancy and birth, it wasn't focused on my journey. It was just go to my appointments when I'm supposed to go to my appointments, take all the tests I'm supposed to do, do my ultrasounds, and then let's just have the baby. All I wanted was the baby. I didn't really care about everything in between. Come to find out that is actually a very important. So (laughs) that will be later that I'll discuss the importance of that and actually being prepared Mm -hmm. for your birth and also kind of enjoying your pregnancy because I wasn't enjoying my pregnancy either. I was so stressed out with work and Also, I mean, there's a lot of hormones going on that I didn't understand. And it was just kind of like this influx of a lot of things going on. And um, that really affected probably my birth as well. So I was 37 weeks like on the dot. And at the time, I know now it's still early term is now what they call it. But at the time, that's basically your full term. And you can have this baby without it being considered preterm. And I started having contractions at like four in the morning. And I do remember being like, okay, I do want to labor at home as long as possible, because that that is one thing that I was told was for you to labor at home as long as you can. So I started having contractions. I woke Dave up and I was like, I think it's happening. He goes, oh shit. Okay, let's go. I was like, take time. They're not like four minutes apart every, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Right. 
And so he's taking time and they were like 10 minutes apart, seven minutes. I was like, you know what? It's still dark out. Like, let's walk the dogs. So we Mm -hmm. walked the dogs um, and it was like five in the morning. It was still dark. No one there. It was actually kind of peaceful. And I just remember like talking to Dave and was like, oh my God, I think we're going to meet our daughter today. And I started crying and then he started crying. It was like a beautiful moment. Okay. Oh, sweet. And then it was like 7 a.m. I want to say, and like they're starting to get close together. So we went to the hospital and as soon as we got to the hospital, they checked us in and then she like checked my cervix. Honestly, I don't remember what my measurements were, but basically my contractions kind of stalled. And so they're like, they sent me home. And I was like, are you kidding me? So I get home, I get in the shower and then it became unbearable. I was like, no, these contractions are so like tight together that like, I need to go back. And like, I just remember that car ride, even though it was only like a 15 minute car ride was brutal. I was Mm. like, this baby's coming. (laughs) Oh my gosh, (laughs) hurry up. (laughs) And then we get there, they admit me, even though I'm telling you I was home for maybe like 10 minutes when, like when they sent wow. me the letters. Yeah. And then they're like, oh yeah, you're ready. And I was like, cool. Get like I said epidural. this. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, get me the epidural. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that, at that point I was like, that's a common practice. It's like an epidural. I don't want to feel this pain. Of course. So went through the epidural and then they broke my water. They asked me, they're like, do you want your water broken? I was like, sure. I don't know. Is that what I didn't know that. So they induced you. Yeah. And then McKenna still wasn't moving down, but I was still Mm -hmm. going through contractions. And so they pumped me with Pitocin to get Mm. things moving. And then the anesthesiologist came and did the epidural. So that was nice because I like, you know, couldn't feel anything. I do remember, so they popped whatever the the water, Mm -hmm. but nothing came out yet. But then all of a sudden when the epidural kicked in, I could feel this like warmth of gush. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I think my water broke. I was like, oh, this is going to happen soon. I mean, it took, I was in labor for 18 hours. From being admitted into the hospital. Yes. And so by the time I was like ready to start pushing, they moved me into this separate room. I do remember that. And like the doctor that was on call, she like was barely there. She was like, okay, sure. If you want to start pushing, go ahead. You're 10 centimeters. And I was like, um, okay. And the nurse that was with me, cause it was starting to get late. It was like 10, 10 PM or something. And the nurse that was with me was like starting to doze off while I'm pushing. And I was like, um, is like, what is happening right now? It sounds like one of my pregnancy nightmares. (laughs) And I'm pushing and McKenna is going like, here's my vagina. Mm -hmm. It's going in, out, in, out. And so Dave's like, I see her. Oh, I see her. And I was like, what is she doing? (laughs) I was like getting upset. And I'm pushing for two hours. My, uh, during this time, my epidural wears off. Mm. So I can feel everything. I asked the nurse, I was like, I can feel everything. My legs are moving. And she's like, oh, but you need to feel a little bit of pressure. Like, I was like, I need more epidural. And she's like, uh, no, you need to feel a little bit of pressure. And I was like, I feel everything. And she's like, well, you're almost there. We can see the head. And then, but my body was so stressed out that she wasn't coming out and she actually moved. So finally they call the doctor in 
And the doctor is like, oh, she's diagonal. And I was like, okay, I don't, and I'm like freaking out, right? Cause I'm like, I'm in so much pain. There was a lot, it was just really intense. And then it kind of felt like out of nowhere, she kind of was like, all these nurses and doctors came in. Like, I'm telling you like 10 people were in there. So we were like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And the doctor was just like, your baby's diagonal. You're like, she's stressed out. The heart, heart rate's low. Um, if we can't pull her out by forceps, then you're going to have to have a C-section. And at mm. that point, I'm used to listening to the doctor. I'm like, okay, I mean, do what you have to do for, to get my baby out and for it to be safe. So she pulls her out with forceps and while she pulls out forceps and I'm crowning and I could feel everything, I scream because it hurts so bad. I scream and the doctor, I heard her go, she should not be screaming. So a nurse, the baby nurse who like helps clean the baby and all that stuff came over, took my mouth and muzzled me with two hands and screamed no in my face while I'm crowning. Meanwhile, and now you have to get Dave for his perspective on this, but like he was saying, on one hand, he's seeing me being muzzled. On the other hand, he's seeing our baby being pulled with forceps. And I, of course, it's coming out of my vagina, so I can't see it. But from his, I mean, he, it, they pull with such force. He's like, I thought she killed our baby. Everything happened so fast pulled her out. She was crying. She was healthy, but Dave wasn't like, they just took her away, cleaned her off, cut her umbilical cord, didn't ask Dave to cut it. It was just like a whirlwind. The one thing they did honor was putting her on my chest after they like cleaned her off and then didn't wipe her hands because of the smell. And so she could crawl to my nipple and she did. And she latched that was probably the best part of that whole birth experience. And I just remember both Dave and I, we were like in such shock, but like we got our baby, like that's what we wanted. Mm -hmm. But when we kind of like reflected after, and like we went into the, um, like the post recovery room or whatever it's called, like the postpartum room, um, we both kind of talked about it. We were just like, was that normal? Like, was that like, what happened to me? What happened to the baby? Like, is that normal practice? And we kept like, we, because we both didn't know. And then of course, the more people we told about the story, they were just like, that should have never happened. They should have bubbled this, this, they should have asked you this, 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 and this. And I was like, the more I told the story, the more I was tearing up because it was pretty traumatic experience. Two or three weeks later, Dave and I were like, okay, enough people have told us how wrong that was. Let's file a complaint because nobody should have to go what we went through. So mm -hmm. we did, and there was like an investigation and they retrained all their nurses and all that stuff too. But like, what about the doctor? I know. Yeah. I don't think the doctor had anything because they're like a separate practice. They just go yeah. into the hospital, right? Like, so I don't know. It was just, it was a pretty horrific experience. And then even years later, telling the story would still tear me up. So yeah, then, I was starting to tear up right now. And I've heard this story before, but I don't remember hearing yeah. it in this much detail. And I feel really sick to my stomach. I'm sorry. No, don't Here. be, don't <laughs> be sorry. I just, I think being pregnant and just yeah. the fact that that could happen to someone who is pregnant and going through something that should be so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it was definitely, it was like a learning experience for sure. And that's why I'm like, 
I'm glad you're pregnant now and like could learn from at least Amari's, like both of them, right? Like yeah. McKenna and Amari's birth. So going into the second one, how did you approach it differently than the first? Okay. So I wanted to wait until I pretty much forgot <laughs> what it was like. <laughs> so Amari is eight months now. Yeah, she's a pandemic baby. Mm-hmm. Conceived before the pandemic though. Let me, let me just say that. Okay. Don't throw it in my face. We get it. <laughs> better than me. (laughs) It wasn't bad. It was just, you know, yeah. So when I got pregnant with Amari, so let me preface this first. Dave and I were trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. We did get pregnant and we miscarried the first time around. So that was a really hard, that was a very, very hard because for a couple weeks, we were really excited for this baby. And then, um, So my husband, Dave, during the time he was a field service engineer, he's in charge of all of West coast. So he travels a lot. So when I, we got pregnant, he was traveling and I think he was in California. And when it happened, it was the night before I felt just this bad cramp and I was spotting, I was bleeding a little bit and I was like, Oh my God, like, am I, am I miscarrying? And I texted my friend and she was like, you might have, uh, what, what's it, what's it called? The implantation bleeding. And I was like, I hope it's implantation bleeding. Like, I don't know. She goes, wait till tomorrow. If it's like bright red or something, then you've miscarried. The reason why I texted her too, was because she has miscarried before. So she knows. Mm -hmm. So I waited out and I'm cramping all night. I didn't get any sleep. It was like six in the morning and I go to the bathroom and there's quite a bit of blood and it's Mm -hmm. bright red. And my heart sinks. I'm by myself and I'm starting to panic. I have pretty bad anxiety. So like I started to have a real panic attack at the same time, I'm here by myself with my toddler. So I had to be like, okay, I need to like, not look like I'm terrified or anything for my toddler. So I call Dave and I was like, I'm definitely miscarrying and I'm starting to panic and I'm shaking and I, and I'm getting dizzy. I, I feel like I'm going to pass out and I could feel myself going in and out and I'm continuously losing blood. So Dave calls his sister who is a nurse and um, his sister's boyfriend, who's an EMT guy and they live in the Springs. So it's like 45 minutes away. Her boyfriend came as soon as he could. But in the meantime, he was like, you need to call the ambulance, make sure it's not an ectopic pregnancy. And so they came, the ambulance came, the fire department and like I was like, I don't want to spend all this money to get into an ambulance. And so I was just like, can you just like check my vitals Mm -hmm. basically type thing? He goes, if this is an ectopic pregnancy and it ruptures like you, this will be really bad. He goes, let's just go. And I was like, screw it. Let's just go to the ambulance. We do have insurance. But of course I was freaking out because of my toddler, but she came into the fire truck with us. And it was like an experience for her. They gave her like a stuffed animal. They actually, they got the car seat. Mm. They actually like were pretty great. But once I got there, um, they came in and they took the pregnancy like test and all that stuff. And it basically moral of the story. No, there is no moral end of the story. I definitely miscarried and it was very traumatic because I did, it was doing it by myself. And my husband, you know, my husband wasn't there. He did take the next flight out, but it was just, that was really hard. So the reason why I told that backstory is because when I went until Mari's birth, so then I got pregnant a month later, I was very lucky. Of course, the whole time that I was pregnant, I was 
terrified I was going to miscarry again. Mm -hmm. And every week that passed by, it was just like, it would have been harder and harder. So I wanted to ask you first, because I've heard the term rainbow baby being thrown out more often. Would Amari technically be a rainbow baby? Yes. So yeah, a rainbow baby is a baby that you've conceived after a miscarriage or some, you know, some people have multiple miscarriages. Yeah. So when I made it to my eight week checkup, I found a midwife and I told her basically this story that I've been telling you. I told about McKenna's birth and I told about the miscarriage and she goes, I have a great therapist and I think you should see them during this pregnancy so that your mind is right because trauma can come up at the worst times. And I don't want trauma to come up for you during this birth. And I was like, great, I will go to this therapist. It's pretty amazing too, that your midwife knew automatically that, you know, these are telltale signs to go see someone. I mean, it seems like a lot of people are not guided in that direction when going through pregnancies. I went to her throughout my entire pregnancy and we did EMDR and unpacked first the first birth and then the miscarriage. And that was huge in getting my mind right going into Amari's birth. And then because it was just Dave and I, and we had no one to advocate for us because we did not know how to advocate for ourselves. We also got a doula who was incredible. And that was very helpful. Very, very helpful in the birth. When it came time for her birth, first of all, McKenna came early. So even everyone was telling me, oh, you're probably going to give birth early again. This is the second kid. Your body's ready, you know, used to this, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, cool, get to meet my baby sooner. That's what I like to hear. I love how everyone thinks that they're the expert though. <laughs> you know? Gosh, I know. <laughs> Don't listen to anybody. But I mean, truly. you know what I mean? Like when it comes to like, oh, I bet this baby, it's like, yeah, you bet. Go uh-huh. ahead, put money on it. Because <laughs> usually it doesn't pan out. So I know that you're going to go into your birth story, but before you do, I have a question. It just came up. Did you feel more connected to this pregnancy than you did with McKenna's? Absolutely. I really did. Of course, I think though, what the difference is, is I paid attention to this pregnancy a lot more. And I honestly, I had a lot more anxiety with this pregnancy because of everything else that happened with McKenna and that pregnancy. I was, like I said, I was going through the motions. I was just kind of living my life. Oh yeah, there is a baby in my belly. Oh, she's kicking. Oh, there, there she is. But with Amari, it was like, okay, she just did this. Oh, is that okay? Oh my God, my heart rate feel like is going up. So it was like, I had like, oh, she's still there. Oh, it would, but I also did have a more of a connection. Like I've just mm-hmm. like felt, I don't know. I just, I enjoyed her more, even though I'm saying like I had anxiety with this. That was just like an added thing, but I still enjoyed her more in my belly. Yeah, that makes sense. So like I said, everyone told me it was going to be early. Did not happen. I actually yeah. I actually went through a thing called prodromal labor, which is basically where it's like, it feels like you're going into labor, but then hours later, it subsides. And I had that for two weeks and it would happen at night. So I was not getting any sleep but my contractions were very close together. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I think this is it. But I wanted to labor at home as long as possible until I couldn't handle it anymore. So I would, but turns out it was prodromal labor. And I was, and I'm telling you, I was getting desperate towards those last weeks. I was eating six dates a day, like you're supposed to drinking red raspberry leaf tea. And then it hit the 40 weeks 
And I remember. Yeah. I was like, okay, um, what is happening? I really don't want to be induced. And so when I went to my midwife, I was like, she's like, okay, we're still here. She goes, I go, I don't want to be induced. And she goes, we will not induce unless it gets to like 42, 43 weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, do I need to take like castor oil or something? She's like, no, (laughs) do not do that. (laughs) She's like, your baby is going to come naturally. Like you're fine. So it hit the 40 weeks and I was like, this baby's still not here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then finally, uh, that night, I had sex. That's supposed to help induce labor. Um, and after we had sex, my mucus plug fell out and I was like, Ooh, I think this is it. Okay. I need to get rest because if this is really it, like I'm not going to get rest for a while. So I mm-hmm. slept, I was having contractions. I could feel them, but I was rested as well as I could. I should say, put to preface this, we, Dave and I, so part of the thing with the doula too, she gave us some great resources on books. So we read up a lot of books and like what, and so we were prepared of what my body was going through. Both of us, Dave too. Dave read mm-hmm. the birth partner book and it changed his life. I'm telling you, he reread and reread that book and was like, I can't, I wish I had this book with McKenna. So when I told him everything, he like, he just knew he was like, oh, okay. So let's, let's get this going kind of thing. So then we wake up and it's like, first of all, also I should say, I should say this. So it's June. This was June. Okay. She was born June 13th. We woke up, I'm having contractions and I'm just like powering through them. I was like, this is, I'm good. Labor as long as possible. June 13th, we had this like community-wide garage sale and I it's like this happens once a year this is Chelsea's dream (laughs) I I, I love garage sales I can find the best things for so cheap anyway so I've been kind of waiting for this come to find I'm in labor and I'm like Dave let's just it's like 8 a.m is when they start okay so I was just like let's just walk if like it gets too bad and like I can't talk let's go to the hospital or like, I'm having too, like too hard of time. We get to the first house at this garage sale and I'm like, Oh, Dave, look, there's a ceiling fan. See how much that is. And like, and he's just like, of course, Dave's like, Chelsea, are you okay? These are getting very close together. Like we should go to the hospital. And I was like, we're good. (laughs) Like going, and I was like, okay, we're that one passed. And then like two minutes later, another contraction came and I like held onto his shoulder in the middle of this person's driveway going, oh, and then finally I was like, okay, Dave, I think we should go to the hospital. So, (laughs) (laughs) which was great because Dave's mom just got there. I was like, okay, now we have people to watch McKenna. Let's go. Mm -hmm. So we get to the hospital, mind you, I forgot this is during a pandemic. So we have our masks and they take our temperature. No one else can be in the room. I am lucky that this hospital um, allowed one support person, which that's other than your partner. So that means my doula could come. Texting my doula, by the way, all throughout. And so she was on her way, got everything ready. Luckily we had our bags packed. We were, I mean, we were prepared for this birth. We get up there, they instantly check my, check my cervix. They're like, Ooh, good work, girl. You're six centimeters, five, six centimeters. 
dilated. I was like, yes, let's get this going. So we get there at 9 a.m. I gave birth to Amari at 11.55 a.m. Pretty quick. But during the time, honestly, it was, it was incredible because they gave me my space. My doula and Dave were both there just like advocating for me and supporting me. And I had my music playing. I got to use the shower and the water. I got to use a ball, change positions. Mind you, my water still didn't break either. So basically when it came time to transition, I had a moment of like relapse and I was like, I don't think I can do this. And my doula looked at me and goes, Chelsea, you're doing it. And I go, okay. I just basically needed to get the words out and then I was good to go. So then it came time to start pushing, but my water still didn't break. So when the midwife was like, if I break your water, cause in my birth plan, it says, I want my waters to break naturally. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I will tell you, she goes, if we do break your waters, this baby is probably going to slip right out and you're going to have this baby in the next like five minutes, but we can wait. And I was like, you know what? No, I want to break my waters. Like I want, this, <laughs> I want this baby. So they broke my waters and I mean, she almost slipped out. Like everybody was ready to like catch. <laughs> and I want to say it was like maybe five pushes and she was out. And it was like the most intense but then after when she came out, like the biggest release I could, like, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was incredible. And they instantly put her, they didn't even clean her off. They put mm-hmm. her on my chest. They didn't need to, they didn't cut the cord. Cause I, in my birth plan, it says to not cut the cord until um, it's the cord stops pulsating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just had her on my chest the whole time. Once the cord stopped pulsating, the midwife was like, all right, it's done data do you want to come cut the cord? And so he got to cut the cord, um, which is great. And then I was like, do you have to clean or anything? They're like, you know what? No, just keep her on you. And she was on my chest for like two hours. She was nursing on both sides. And it was like, you tell us when you want us to come cleaner and we will, but there is no rush bond with your baby. And it was just such a surreal experience because unlike McKenna's birth, where I was like, was that how it's supposed to happen? Was that like constantly questioning, like, was that okay? Did we do okay? Like, it was just like, I got to enjoy my baby. There were no questions about whether it was a good birth or not, or whether this was right. It was just like, both Dave and I were like, we knew it was right. And we both Mm -hmm. got to enjoy our baby for so long. And it was, it was great. I remember visiting you after McKenna's and hearing parts of that story, but not the entirety of it, as you had shared today. And, you know, both of you are just really tired. It just was kind of typical of what I have heard and seen in terms of women that go through just conventional ways of giving birth. And then when I saw you the second time, there just was this energy to you that was so light and just wonderful. I couldn't even describe it, but you just, you just had never looked more like yourself. I felt like a superhero. I'm not even you. So yeah, after McKenna, I was just like, nobody look at me. I'm this gross monster. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I hate everyone. I want like, except for this baby, like, and then it was just, I mean, new parent thing too. And also I'm, I'm sure I had a little bit of postpartum depression, to be honest, Mm -hmm. such a different experience. And then with Amari, 
we left the hospital 24 hours later with McKenna. I think it was like two, three days. We didn't leave. And then with Amari, we were home the next day. And then I was like, should we go walk the dogs? And we walked as a family. Like, it was just like, I kind of picked up. I mean, of course I was, you know, going through my postpartum, like I was still bleeding, you know, whatever. But it was such a different feeling. Like I still felt like I could do things after with McKenna, I did not feel that way. I was like, I need to like stay in bed. I am, oh my gosh, this hurts. Oh, is it supposed to be bleeding? Like I had all these questions and like, didn't know. I was like, this is how my body is supposed to be. And with Amari, I was like, I was prepared. I was like in this euphoria state for, I feel like a month. Mm -hmm. And of just like, oh man, I got this. Like, this is great. I mean, it's pretty incredible, the difference between the two. And that's obviously why I have you on here to share that. So one thing I wanted to ask you is for anyone that's new to pregnancy or they're on their second or third and maybe didn't have the best experience for their first, however many, what suggestions would you give someone in terms of like seeking out resources and having the birth that you envision for yourself? So one thing that I kind of learned through this like second birth and you need to understand the mechanisms of giving birth and your partner needs to understand the mechanisms of giving birth. But if you just have any birth, you need to understand what's going through your body and your partner needs to understand what's, what's going through your body too, because there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and you need to also get your mind right. For example, me, um, where I had, some pretty traumatic experiences with my first birth and then my miscarriage trauma creeps up at the worst times. If you have some extra baggage, or even if you maybe necessarily didn't go through something traumatic, but have a lot of anxiety going into the birth, you need to do some kind of, you need to get your mind right somehow. So that's by talking to a doctor, talking to a therapist, starting to undo that before the birth. I think also the biggest thing and I, that I want to emphasize the most is if you do have a partner, they need to be on board yeah. and they need to be an advocate for you. And because when you get into that active labor transition, I mean, at that point you can't even speak. So you need to come up a game plan with your partner. You tell your partner, say these words, say these affirmations, put on this music. If that doesn't work, do this, do that. Like they need to have backup plan after backup plan after backup plan. Um, and of course, if you have the means to do it, I would recommend getting a doula because they've been through this. They know what to do. Uh, they know all the different tricks. And also what's great about doulas is that, you know, they, they, when they advocate, then their partner gets to see, oh, I can step in and do that too. You know, I can do that. That looks like she likes that. Let me take over. Doulas are great, especially for first time birth, because you don't know what's going on, but they do. So you have someone in the room who can at least advocate for you because the doctor and the midwife, they're there to get your baby safely out. But the doula is there to be supportive for you and your partner. So that's also a, something I, if people have the means to do it, because unfortunately mm -hmm. doulas are not covered by insurance, which they should be, and they get pretty expensive. But if they, people have the means to do it, I highly, highly can't recommend it enough. Pregnancy and birth, you have to do the work for it. And it's good work. It's not, you know, it's not burden work or anything like that. It's, it's good work and it is challenging, but oh my goodness, the gift at the end. I know how cheesy that sounds, but wow. 
Kara, I loved how you and Chelsea ended that conversation because, you know, the journey to giving birth is really hard and can be really hard, especially if you aren't prepared for it. But it is all worth it. Whatever work you put in to have a good birth experience. And it shouldn't be that hard. I mean, now let's reflect back to the hard or traumatizing part of my sister's birth story. Um, Yeah, I honestly think that my jaw was dropped over 80% of that conversation. That was insane. I re-listened to it on my morning walk with Kaya and my jaw was literally dragging on the ground and it was like making sparks. That bad? It was that bad. It was, it's just freaking awful. My body even tensed up. I mean, yeah, I've listened to this before. I listened to her say it when we recorded the episode. I've listened to it in the past and it, it's just awful. It is. There's gaslighting, the way the staff mm-hmm. treated her. There's muzzling, which is terrifying. Yeah. The muzzling? I knew that she was muzzled, but I also didn't know that the person yelled, no, like into yeah. her, like she's a fucking child. Excuse me. In my what world? Ugh. The worst part of it all, too, is the shame that you feel, that shame hangover mm-hmm. after these traumatic experiences when you come into a situation like birth where you're kind of hoping that it's magical or even not magical. You just hope that it's a smooth process to have a baby mm-hmm. at the end. And there's a major lack of transparency about what goes on or what could happen. And all of this horrible stuff just continues to get normalized. Mm -hmm. It's all so common, but there's a lot of questionable decisions and biases taking place in the delivery room that we really need to unpack. And going back to what we were saying about Chelsea's personality and her not being afraid to get what she wants and go after what she wants at the beginning of this episode she still felt powerless in her first birth. Yeah. And I mean, white coat syndrome, right? Is like that Mm -hmm. uncomfortable power dynamic relationship that one can have with a provider. And she's human and she was in a very vulnerable state. Giving birth, even if you're in an empowering state, it's still vulnerable. And so to have a shitty situation like that happen to you, what do you do? A baby's literally come out of your vagina. How are you supposed to be like, hey, don't do that? Or like, don't speak or slap the hand away. Like, that just doesn't happen. So, Kara, you brought up white coat syndrome and what that means. And while we're kind of talking about terms here, can we talk about obstetric violence? Based on various research studies and definitions by big organizations like the World Health Organization, Lamaze.org, Obstetric violence includes vaginal exams without consent, physical force to prevent birth while waiting on the doctor to arrive, super fun, physical Mm -hmm. restraint during birth, which is what Chelsea experienced, sexual comments or sexual assault during exams or procedures, bullying into procedures like induction, episiotomy, or cesarean without medical reason. A lot of that happens for the convenience of getting the person to give birth, right? Mm -hmm. Also failing to get consent. So we mentioned that a little bit with the vaginal exams without consent. This really is consent overall. And so in my experience Mm -hmm. with my midwife, she asked me every time we did a checkup if it was okay if she touched me in a certain spot. She never just touched me. And so failing to get consent really is applicable to consent everywhere. And then lastly, being treated or spoken to disrespectfully and or without regard for autonomy. That should just be a general rule of thumb, being a human, is like, let's talk to each other like we respect each other. Uh, Very true. Yeah. And I think at the root of this issue, 
there's a lot of hospitals and staff members not being held accountable for their actions because it's so, I hate to use the word normal, but common practice. A lot of it doesn't get reported. It slips through the cracks. And then people are left kind of questioning, you know, was that normal? Is that supposed to happen? Yeah, exactly. And you have that feeling. I mean, as a human, we have those gut feelings of if something Mm -hmm. feels right or if it feels wrong, but it's constantly put into question, especially when you're with an authoritative figure. And even for Chelsea's situation, they eventually said something and reported it, but it was after speaking about her story a couple times when people were like, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. You should say something. And so I think that really inspired her too. But really the onus is not on us as customers of the healthcare system, as patients. It's on the providers that need to find better ways to care for people and be more patient-centered and and listening to the patients. But we also, you know, need to recognize once again that this country operates in a system that encourages burnout. It encourages forcing people into procedures that are are going to be more time efficient. They're working ridiculously long shifts. They're on call even when they're not in the hospital. And then they see a lot of horrible things on top of it. So we also need to remember that doctors are humans as well. And humans are not robots. And these humans have to get educated on how to treat other humans in this really intense setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of good points. And taking into account things like burnout and compassion fatigue, because that really does play a huge role there. If you're exhausted and you're showing up to a birth, you're not going to be the best version of yourself. But like you said, too, the onus is really on the providers. And when Chelsea Mm -hmm. talked about how I think the nurse had to go through a training, that was my first question was, what about the provider that told her to take care of it? Yeah. Um, And when providers aren't providing quality care, what's the next step? And how can we make sure that the person who went through this training, quote unquote, are actually going to put those things into their daily practice Mm -hmm. when it comes to helping someone give birth or other procedures. So I think that just leaves me questioning too, like how can a birthing person protect themselves from this obstetric violence, knowing all that is going on in a person's mind during this time? Yeah. And we definitely won't be unveiling all of the solutions for that. We have some resources. So I just want to make sure I throw that out there. Yeah, that was a big question. Yeah, that's a a big question. I don't even, where do I start? Well, (laughs) my sister's story and many other birthing people with traumatic stories out there demonstrate that we, the birthing person, need to be a part of the conversation or we suffer the consequences in birth, in postpartum, Mm -hmm. and then beyond that. Yeah, that's that's super powerful. Just being a part of the conversation, you know, we're, we're paying the professionals, the healthcare providers for a service. And the last thing we should be worried about is being taken advantage of, being violated or abused in the process of giving birth. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. Because even when the swarm of nurses and doctors came in, I think she said there was about 10 of them was she asked if that's okay? I mean, again, that's a very mm-hmm. personal, yeah. vulnerable time. And you're just having a crowd of people come in and be spectators. Yeah, like you're at a zoo. Yeah, exactly. Though I will yeah. say when you give birth, you make noises that are very <laughs> zoo-like. <laughs> but you're still not in a zoo, so no one can. Yes, yeah, exactly. They don't have the right. 
They didn't pay for tickets. Um, yeah, and what, okay, so I'm going to switch gears just a little bit on the mm-hmm. same topic, but we're going to talk about cats. Okay, animals. See? Good segue. Oh, I didn't even yeah. mean to do that. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I didn't even realize that we weren't really switching the topic that much. <laughs> so when we were, we were planning this episode out, something came up about a study about cats. And it's a peer-reviewed study by the National Institute of Health. And it shows that when animals feel threatened during labor, their bodies release a specific stress hormone that actually puts a stop or a pause on the labor process until they feel safe again. And if we need to go back to high school science class, actually humans are animals. Um, what? <laughs> I Right? Um, as humans, we experience the same primal instincts mm-hmm. and failure to progress is often heard during the delivery process. And we wonder why. But it's because we have this reaction to stress that actually inhibits the labor process. Yeah, this I mean, there's so many connections there that we can just put together as we're observing, as we're listening. It's funny because I've actually seen a cat give birth before. It was the craziest thing. I was a teenager and it, it was, it was incredible. Honestly, it was making the craziest noises, but I watched it go through the whole contraction process and we made sure that it had a safe space where it felt comfortable to give birth mm. and it did. And it wasn't threatened. It was in like a little corner. And anyways, so I've seen cats give birth. That's a separate thing. Wild experience. Everyone YouTube it. Moral of the story. <laughs> Watch some cats birth. Watch them give birth. Okay, and try to emulate that. So another thing I remember hearing while I was pregnant, it was someone on my birth team. I don't remember exactly who, but they described the analogy of how being in a birth space is similar to when we have sex, where, you know, most people tend to want to feel safe to be able to fully relax because you feel safe and let go. And hearing that analogy and after giving birth, it is so similar to that experience because you really do want to feel safe. You want to feel heard by those around you. And also the pleasure in the sense that you're working through your contractions and you're feeling empowered that you can do this. So Kara, I'm curious, in what ways did Chelsea's birth experience influence your birth experience and the plans that you made going into it? You are asking a great question. I appreciate this question a lot because her birth experience was honestly one of my number one influences with how I wanted my experience to go. So ways that was influential was being able to find a provider that aligned with my values, which for me was someone who appreciated mindfulness, the mind-body connection in relation to birth, and had integrative recommendations for other providers that could help with any symptoms that I experienced during pregnancy, like back aches or misalignment of my pelvic floor area, mm-hmm. which I've talked about how I did pelvic floor therapy. And that was something that Chelsea did was find a provider that aligned with her. And of course I had to work mm-hmm. within my network too, and who was under my coverage. Chelsea kind of talked about how she shopped around the second time. Did yeah. you shop around at all? And how was, how was that for you? That is a really good question. I, I am not a patient person <laughs> in case you didn't know, Kelly. <laughs> And when I found someone that I liked, I had to force myself to seek out another person and interview Mm. with them because that's what happened with Chelsea and she had a better experience. It's not to say I'm just doing everything like her, but it tends to happen when you look up to your older sister. 
Oh, mm-hmm. tear. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Chelsea. Mm, cute. But I did do that. And actually the funny story is, is I sought out another midwife who was in the same practice and was like, no, you should go see Tiffany, who was my midwife. She sounds like she'll better align with you. So mm. I only saw two. And I love that the other midwife was like, all right, I think you probably align with Tiffany more. Unless yeah, I she was like, okay. no, you no, you heard that right. She was kind of okay. She didn't say this, but she essentially alluded to, yeah, you're a little bit too mushy-gushy for me. (laughs) She's like, sorry. "Sorry." (laughs) A little less crunchy. (laughs) Um, I did have honey at my birth, which was delicious. Anyways, another piece of that is Emily, who brought the honey. She was my doula in the previous episode. Check it out. All about the disparities in the delivery room and how doulas can help with that. Just a little plug in there. But another thing too was Chelsea really instilled this confidence in me that birth can be empowering Mm -hmm. and unmedicated if you so choose. And I really appreciate this, but the one word that she never used with me was pain. She never said that birth was painful, except for McKenna's, obviously. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But with Amari's, she never said pain. She just said intense. And that really reframed that thought process going in. And I would like even correct people. They'd be like, oh, like it's going to be so painful or mine is so painful. And I'm like, I think it's just going to be intense. And so I just would speak that out. I'm going to, that's my takeaway. So Chelsea really used her resources and sought things out the second time around. Do you feel like you took a note from her book in that, in that sense? Or how did you kind of frame your shopping around when you had Kaya? I like that. I like that term shopping. So I am inherently pretty resourceful, I would say. But if you go into something where you don't know what you don't know, like Chelsea's Mm -hmm. first birth, you wouldn't even know what resources to look out for. So a big thing that I did because I was a grad student, I wasn't making a ton of money, but just enough for my situation. Definitely not enough to give birth. So I actually am qualifying for Medicaid. So I was on Medicaid Mm. when I had Kaya, which helped me with a reimbursement for Emily's services. And there's a lot of different resources that come with being on Medicaid, but it also inspired me to find other free resources that were in the community and ones that my doula found for me. Mm. So not everything has to cost money. Obviously, time is also an expense. And I had some of it because it was the pandemic. And I was able to do school from home. So there's obviously a lot of layers to that. Mm -hmm. But there are free resources out there that we will include. But I do want to share my greatest tip. Please, drum roll. (laughs) Might be underwhelming. I don't know. (laughs) Well, let's let's see. My greatest tip is, regardless of your coverage, do some research or recruit someone. Make your partner step up. Okay, you're giving birth, but... They're also part of it too. Whoever it is, that loved one that's there, recruit them to do it for you to find out what your insurance covers, baby-wise. If you're not insured, what are those free resources that are around? Even things like a lactation consultant. There's so many things that we don't think of. We just think Mm -hmm. about the day of, but then there's postpartum and all of that. And I know we go into this a lot with the doula episode, so I don't want to get into the weeds there. But this all goes back to The point that we try to hammer in every time is being your own advocate or having someone be an advocate for you. That was uh, a great tip. Not underwhelming at all. Thank you. So great, in fact. I would like to kind of dive in more. Just, you know, kind of some takeaways. We always like to leave our show with some takeaways because when we talk about the health field and the healthcare system and all of these things, it can be overwhelming. And sometimes I'm left feeling hopeless because 
for example, this topic, I'm not someone who's given birth, but I've had friends, um, family members who have been pregnant, have given birth before. So I want to feel empowered to be helpful in those situations. And tangible action steps are always really, really helpful, even if it's just some of those resources. So let's talk about some action steps. What are some action steps for someone who is pregnant and those who are the support system for the pregnant person? For people who are pregnant, for partners of birthing people, for friends of birthing people, we have covered a lot of things that went wrong. And like Kelly said, we want to go through a few things that pregnant people and all the other people we had mentioned can do to help mitigate those negative experiences. So the first one, go shopping. Shop around for care providers. Build a relationship with more than one. So if they are not on call the day that you give birth, you know that you have options and have developed a relationship with those other providers, or at least know them to some degree, because that's got to be weird to give birth and a freaking stranger is coming in, spreading your legs. Like, yeah, no, thank you. The second piece would be to seek out local or virtual resources where you feel safe enough to share your concerns and your story. If you have one, hear other stories, or just to have the knowledge to prepare for the birthing experience and postpartum. The third one is to create a birth plan so that you have a written list of your non-negotiables for your care. So things that are a hell no, that cannot happen. You can find any templates online. We'll include some in the show notes, but it can also help you to be stronger in your self-advocacy or for others to help advocate for you. Because when you're in the moment, you're not, you're not saying like, this is all my birth plan. I don't want this, this, and this, or most people aren't. So having that for someone else writing it out for our partners, loved ones, so that they can read off and say, hey, she doesn't want this, or she does want this, or they don't want this, or they do want this. Yeah, that's that's such a great point. Um, and something that we've talked about in our first episode together, I think, is coming in with a list, coming into an appointment, but coming into your birth with a list of those absolutely hell no things. Mm-hmm. And then for people like me who haven't been pregnant have no fear. There's also action steps for us. And they kind of align with what Kara said. So it may sound repetitive, but just being the supportive friend for someone who may need a backup advocate, even for someone who might seem outspoken and ready to be an advocate for themselves, that might not always be the case, especially when you're in a situation of birth or another vulnerable situation. So knowing that someone else is there to kind of back you up or just having someone nearby you trust with your wants and needs can be helpful. So, you know, be that person who is willing to sit down with your friends, your partner, whoever is having a baby and needs a support system that you're willing to be the support system for, sit down with them and make sure that you're on the same page as their birth plan. The second thing is something that Chelsea brought up and she really said how helpful it was for her partner, Dave, which was Reading the Birth Partner by Penny Simkin, which there's a couple different volumes. So kind of cool that it's evolving as the birth process evolves. Reading some sort of book like that so that you can understand a little bit more the mechanics of pregnancy and the mechanics of birth, which will inevitably help build empathy and awareness and make you feel a little more calm going into the experience. And then lastly, not only being an advocate for the birthing person, but also advocating for local policies. When we say advocating, a lot of times it can sound like that's not for me. I'm not politically involved. 
advocating can just mean asking for something, looking for something, and again, asking like for coverage. So when you advocate for local policies, that can mean something like the Medicaid bill for doula coverage, which was in Nevada. You can advocate for your health system to have patient advocates available. And you can also help do some research, like Kara said earlier, to find if lactation consultants or other care team members are covered under insurance or potentially under local grants, anything that might help support that birthing person. The fourth point I want to make is really geared towards our healthcare professionals. So if you're in the labor labor and delivery field, you can also be an advocate by asking for consent when you give any sort of exams or even during birth. You can also hold your team accountable, which can be really hard potentially based on the power structure, but there's always clinical leads where you can ask to implement standards of care or standard operating procedures that can help reduce obstetric violence and overall bettering the birth experience for people. And finally, this is for everyone out there, you can support or donate to organizations who are dedicated to advancing birth equity, again, bettering the birthing experience, making some of those resources more accessible for people and education on the mechanics of birth. Um, The Birth Equity Center has great resources and we share that in our show notes. So at the end of the day, the biggest takeaway here is that a person does not lose their fundamental human rights when they become pregnant. And every human being, regardless of their pregnancy status, has the following rights. The right to informed consent, the right to refuse medical treatment, the right to health, the right to equal treatment, and the right to privacy. And this is provided by Lamaze.org. They have excellent resources for birthing people. If you enjoyed this conversation with Chelsea and you're curious about exploring her businesses further, check out our show notes for her websites and Instagram handles. We will also be providing free resources, as we had mentioned, for birthing people or loved ones of birthing people. I just want to say, you know, a big thank you to Chelsea and Kara for taking the time to have this conversation and, you know, specifically to Chelsea for being so open to sharing your story and using that to educate others on, you know, what can be done, what you can do to better your birth experience and Kara for asking so many great questions and just being there to support your sister through it all. So thank you both. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Tuning In From Within on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Once again, my name is Kara Solomsas. And I am Kelly Hurt, and our fabulous producer is Jernai Aniwar. Thanks for tuning in. Tuning Tuning out out for now. now.